Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Well, there you are, Roisin Ingle. Here I am. All packed, ready for London on St. Bridget's Day. I know. Um, it's great. The Irish Embassy and actually Irish Embassies all over the world and various institutions are having a load of St. Bridget's Day um, events. And the one in London is celebrating creativity and Irish women. And there's people like Amy Huberman and Loa, the brilliant musician, and loads of great people going there. So uh, we're going to be talking about changes and challenges for Irish women. And we're also going to be talking about uh, Gronia Whale because Anne Chambers is going to be there. So it's, it's a fantastic programme. So everyone should look up and see all the different events and get involved. It's a great excuse for a party to me. Well, you know, it's very hard work. That's all I can say. Yeah, it sounds horrendous. (laughs) Now, speaking of horrendous matters, today is a special anniversary. Yeah, it's January 31st, 1984 is the day when Anne Lovett and her baby died in uh, Granard County, Longford. And people will remember this. It was a huge seismic story in Irish life. So that's 35 years ago. So it's 35 years ago today that it happened. And as you know, nine months ago, Rosita Boland had her extraordinary investigation published where she spoke to Anne Lovett's boyfriend, who was able to shed a lot of light on the story, much more than we knew, because up till then, really, it had remained untold mostly. And everyone kind of in Granard, you know, understandably perhaps, didn't want to let the media in or talk about the details of how this came to happen, that this this girl, 15 years old, climbs up to the grotto in Granard and gives birth um, to a baby boy, stillborn, and then... That later that day she died herself as she went into irreversible shock. Um, it was a very cold day and she was found by three young boys passing by. So Rosita spoke to Ricky McDonald um, and it was a huge, huge story where he was able to speak about how what a great girl she was. You know, first of all, I thought that was a really beautiful part of the story was that we kind of got to see her as this intelligent, bright, talented. She was a great artist, you we know. We saw a photograph of her as we well. We saw a photograph of her um, and he was able to talk about various details leading up to it. We're actually re-promoting all those articles today on the Irish Times website. So if anyone's interested, they can go to irishtimes.com and they can kind of reacquaint themselves. They with should it. absolutely acquaint themselves or reacquaint themselves but that piece is worth reading yeah. over and over. And it's over. also just one more thing to Tells say. so much. What I think about Anne Lovett is that it started a conversation in this country and it opened up a conversation about women, about pregnancy, about all sorts of things that kind of never really stopped and almost in a way for me, this is the way I look at it, like it kind of culminated really in repeal there last May, um, you know, decades after Anne Lovett died but it, it, it sort of opened um, the floodgates to people being honest about stuff in Ireland, I think, and and it just continued and continued. Um, so, I mean, Gay Byrne, when he got all those letters into his radio programme, he said something about the fact that what mostly what the letters were saying were that Anne Lovett didn't die in vain, that because of Anne Lovett, we were able to look at ourselves in the mirror a bit more honestly. And I think that's, a, that's sort of some kind of nice thing to say about what happened to Anne. It is. It is. It is. Rest in peace, Anne Lovett and her baby. Roisin. On an entirely different note, another story of the week, 
was we have those pictures from the United Arab Emirates this week of the Gender Equality Awards, which are won entirely by men. <laughs> I know, I actually can't, even when you say it out loud there. But the funniest thing was the pictures that came, the proud pictures that they tweeted of all these men in white robes and headdresses and here they are getting their awards Medals for and gender blacks. equality. And it was just really funny. Like, it was quite funny because... They just didn't get it, whoever was sending out those tweets. But funnily enough, I, I tweeted it out, right, to a couple of friends, in particular Mona El Tawawi, who we've had on this podcast, and um, because I knew she would be very tickled, you know, tickled in, in a certain way by it. And then I got a direct message on Twitter from the Dubai media office. Now, I have to tell you. Oh, they were so telling we have an update me, on this. Well, yes, lady. They said, on behalf of the UAE's Gender Balance Council, kindly find attached a statement, a fact sheet to follow up the recent report. So they're coming out saying, you know, we don't think it's fair. So on the report... It, explained that there were women there were women in, around and stuff like that so I just came back and I looked at their explanation but I said yes thank you I didn't see any women represented at the awards which seemed very strange given that it was about gender balance and they said dear Roisin I will explain to you just in brief why these males won First, they didn't win because they are men. They won because they lead ministries and federal entities and that have and have led remarkable change in empowering women at their entities and he goes on to explain what the, who the men were. So it's it's really nice that they're explaining, but ultimately he wasn't really addressing my point. So I said, um, you know, it was a very long message. I can't read it all out. But anyway, he was t- telling me everything. And I said, thank you for this explanation. Do you think it might have been a good idea to have women who had been empowered through these programmes in the photographs or any women at all? Do you agree that it's strange the photos from a gender balance award were not at all gender balanced? It seems like a missed opportunity to show the advances you have outlined here. And uh, they said there was women included in the follow-up tweet around 10 minutes later they posted it and I sort of pointed out to them oh, that, lads. that that wasn't really you know that wasn't really uh, enough lads, and lads. it wasn't yeah but we ended up very good because he asked did I want did we want to interview uh, somebody on the gender balance committee and I I thought quite funnily I said back well as long as it's a, a woman that you're going to put forward and they went oh yes yes of course a woman from the gender balance committee so the good thing is through this nice exchange with the Dubai media office we may have someone from the gender balance committee on to talk to us about it all. Isn't it great when you talk? Yeah, exactly. And in fairness to them, they did defend themselves by saying that women did get awards last year and I actually checked it out and they did. Yeah, and I do think, like, I feel a bit sorry for them because they're obviously... There's people, good people there trying to do, uh, trying to make things better. But I suppose optics wise, it was a no brainer. If you're going to give gender balance awards, even if there was some women vaguely in the background or in the picture, I think that would have helped. Right. So. Well, anyway, we look forward to this interview yes. enormously. Okay, well, well, I'll um, and I would, I would, I would, apart from all the, the, the uh, areas where men's rights still reign supremely in the UAE, it is worth pointing out that 43% of women now hold bachelor's degrees compared to 23% of men. Yeah. So education is making, a, is, is making inroads there and I really do look forward to this interview coming up, Roisin. Yeah, and, and he actually said that women make up 53.4% of the total workforce at the ministry and they occupy 40% of the leading positions. So there okay. are stats and figures that we don't necessarily hear about but as we know, there are more problems than there are good news stories like that. But and and as in our own system, they may all be clustered in the bottom layer or something. Anyway, we'll leave that. Look forward to the interview. Next topic, Me Too. And a story from Davos about men being fearful of mentoring women as a result of the Me Too movement. They're feeling very 
kind of it's a handy excuse isn't it? and frightened so they're saying they didn't want to spend one-on-one time with women um employees because of what it might look like and they might get into trouble from people uh, claiming that they were behaving inappropriately and i just think it's really funny and sad because obviously if you don't behave inappropriately then nothing's going to happen like you know you don't have to worry about that all you have to do is worry about your own behaviour. But I think it's kind of a handy excuse for people who who maybe they don't really want to be doing that anyway. So it's a way of getting out of it. What do you think? Well, what you're saying is absolutely true. On the other hand, I suppose we have to be aware of this if it's happening, because the last thing we want is for any kind of regression in women's progress. Um, And the problem is that that is actually happening. A number of surveys bear that out. Um, The World Economic Forum predicted itself that it would take 202 years for gender power to be reached in the workplace. And this is significantly more than the estimate of 170 years in 2016. So something is happening. The number of female chief executives in the Fortune 500, for example, are down from before. So there is something nasty going on. And one woman uh, who's very influential in this area, she's at the consulting firm Mercer, and she talks about gender fatigue. Oh yeah, well, I can sort of I can see that as well, and it does get a bit relentless. But I suppose when we're trying to change things, it is relentless, isn't it? We have to keep it talking is. about it. We have to keep pushing the, that agenda because it's really important. But I do understand that gender fatigue. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, well, and she's pretty upfront about it. She says once companies have identified those men who make women feel uncomfortable, they have to assess whether the men are clueless, creepy, or criminal which I think is really a rather excellent way of describing three categories. If you think they are <laughs> the clueless, C's. she said, you can, yes. If you think they are clueless, you can coach them. Clueless can become creepy very quickly if you don't address it. If they are creepy, you have to act, she said. I think that's an excellent code to go yeah. by, really, because there are, there are those categories. Tell me the three C's again there, Cathy. Uh, clueless, creepy or criminal. Okay, yeah, and the criminal's pretty clear and you have to take steps to do something about that. Well, she's, they're kind of linked. Clueless can become creepy very quickly if you don't address it. And if they're creepy, you have to act. Mm. So, because creepy is probably telling us something. Uh, but men also need safe spaces to air their confusion and concerns about what behaviour might qualify as bad, said the chief brand officer of Procter & Gamble. And he says we need something like lean-in circles for men. Yeah. I think that's really interesting and it keeps coming up, that whole men's movement thing, that, that, that almost men can learn a lot from the feminist movement and Catelyn Moran has spoken about that before. But I think that makes sense. I mean, if you're, if you're going to say, right, this has been the way it is for a long time, but now we, we're telling you it's unacceptable, you can't just assume people are going to know. No. Like a lot of people do need to be baby steps, explained exactly what, what's wrong and, and what behaviour is not appropriate and all that. Okay, and were these same men ever going out of the way to promote women anyway, you know, so I, I would take it all with a pinch of salt, to be honest. But nonetheless, I think it's no harm to be wary and be aware that some men are clueless and we should treat them accordingly. Well, yes, that's true. So, Cathy, what's on the episode today? Well, Roisin, today I am speaking to our colleague Kitty Holland about a heartbreaking story that she's been working on over the last few weeks. On Christmas Day just gone, 24-year-old mother of three small children, Karen McAvoy, died from sepsis at NACE General Hospital just one week after her baby girl was delivered without complication at the Coombe Hospital in Dublin. Within two days of the birth, Karen was complaining of severe back and abdominal pain exhaustion, flu-like symptoms and sweating. Her partner Barry Kelly says that before she was discharged from the coom, 
Blood samples were taken, but no further action was taken during a postnatal appointment at the Vista Primary Care Clinic in Nace a few days later, or during a visit to the Coombe for their daughter's heel prick test two days before Karen died. By this stage, she was in such pain she needed crutches to walk, continued to experience flu-like symptoms, was sweating and had worsening back and abdominal pain. This is an unbearably sad story and Kitty has spoken to Karen's partner Barry who at just 26 has been left alone to raise the couple's three little children. Later, Dr Joe Murphy-Lawless, adjunct professor of midwifery at Trinity College, joins me on the line. But first, Kitty explains who Karen McEvoy was and what happened to her. Well, Karen um, was 24 and she died on Christmas Day um, and it's it's an appalling, appallingly tragic story. Very young mother of three children um, and she gave birth on the 18th of December in the Coombe and um, she, within about 48 hours of being discharged um, it, was a very, it was a normal, straightforward vaginal birth, full term healthy baby girl. Within 48 hours of being discharged she started to experience flu-like symptoms really severe, lower abdominal pelvic pain and back pain um, and was was experiencing exhaustion, real tiredness. Her partner, Barry Kelly, told me that she was moving very slowly and very laboredly when she was walking around. And she went for a, um, a postnatal checkup at a primary care centre in Nace. She's living in Blessington. Just, just go back a bit there, Kitty. She's 24. She's in the prime of health. Yeah. She left the hospital on crutches, I gather. No, she represented at the hospital on crutches um, on the 23rd of December. So she left um, having just given birth, so tired and sore, normal enough. Um, But within 48 hours, she was experiencing flu-like symptoms, um, shivering, chills, um, severe lower abdominal pain and lower back pain. And she went to a for a postnatal checkup in a primary health centre in Nace on the 21st of December, three days later, where she um, informed them that she wasn't feeling very well. Um, apparently, the nurse there did an examination just to not not of her um, vagina or, or that area, but just of her stomach. And um, she was sent on her way. And um, apparently told she was perfectly normal to be feeling a bit sore and under the weather after giving birth. Um, she apparently got worse then on the 19th and um, was then due at a, um, a heel prick clinic in the Coombe with her baby on the 23rd. And her partner, Barry, told her while she was there that they should go down to the A&E. At this stage, she was on, she was on crutches. She was finding it so difficult to walk that she um, got crutches. And she was sweating, the the pain was worse, Um, she was extremely tired, exhausted um, and she went down to A&E. She apparently was asked to pass a urine, which she did with some difficulty and apparently that's quite important. Apparently that's a sign of possibly an infection in the urinary tract and around the uterus. Um, So she presented the urine and was told, Barry tells me, that she may have sciatica and to call Tala Hospital for an x-ray because the Coombe didn't have x-ray facilities if it got worse. So Monday 24th, they're at home, somewhat reassured by the experience in the Coombe the day before that it's nothing too much to worry about. Uh, But then she woke up on Christmas Day and she was all swollen up. Um, Barry tells me that her arms, her legs, her face, she was slurring her words, finding it very difficult to talk. 
Um, and she, her pupils, he said, had uh, gone down to the size of pet pinpricks and she was too sore to touch. She couldn't let anyone touch her. She was in such pain. So he hollered for his mother to call an ambulance and an ambulance came. And as he told me, they moved incredibly fast. They could see she was really, really ill and they made it to NACE Hospital, the nearest hospital. As he put it, they didn't spare the horses. They got there as fast as they could. And he says as soon as they got into NACE, there was a sense that um, something was seriously wrong with her. She was taken to a room off the emergency department um, and put on a put on broad spectrum antibiotics, which would have required a drip. Um, and they told him that their plan was to sedate her, to try and to intubate her, which was to put a breathing tube down into her lungs and to try and help her breathe because her breathing had become so laboured. Um, he was in and out to her. He was telling her how much he loved her and she was telling him how much she loved him. And he says he was crying and he went into her just before he said can I go in and kiss her goodnight before you they push her to sleep and they said of course you can brought him in he said um she said to him have you been crying because she hated to see him upset and he said of course I have been I'm very worried about you and he kissed her goodbye and said he'd be there when she woke up and unfortunately during the attempts to intubate her she went into cardiac arrest and died there in the emergency department in NACE and it and that has was Christmas Day, Kitty. Christmas Day. And she was 24. And she was 20. And he's only 26. And they have three children now aged, he's there with three children aged one month, the girl, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And he's had to take time for, off work now um, to look after them and I suppose to try and get his head around what's happened. Um, I doubt he's been, been able to begin grieving at all. He's got so much on his plate now. There's a solicitor on the case because we now know, as was confirmed yesterday by the coroner, that Karen died of sepsis. And there are huge questions, it would seem, to be answered about how, in this day and age, after Savita Halapanavar and Tanya McCabe and the women we know who've died of sepsis, how another mother has died. Now, Kitty, I'll hold it there for a moment because we have... Dr. Joe Murphy Lawless on the line. She's an adjunct professor at the School of Midwifery in Trinity College, Dublin. Good morning, Dr. Murphy Lawless. Good morning to you, Cathy. This is beyond outrageous that Karen has died. If you go all the way back to 2008, um, to the report that was um, issued immediately um, in the year after Tanya died, it says very clearly in the recommendations for that report what needs to be done about all staff being equipped with early warning signs about sepsis in childbirth. Um, and also, I may say, to deal with the underlying problems in our maternity services of lack of resources, uh, lack of um, good managerial staff, uh, lack of good consultant availability. All those issues were addressed in 2008. If you speed forward then to after uh, Savita Halapanava died, you look at the HSE report uh, chaired by Professor Aral Kumaran from the UK, um, um, there were all those moments when Savita's basic care was neglected. The Hickel report in 2013 on the care, safety and practices in our maternity hospitals pointed to 13 uh, different occasions on which basic care for Savita was neglected. The iNews chart, I'll just explain what those are. It's an early warning chart um, there um, on a woman's chart that you look at pulse, you look at temperature, you look at urine, you do blood. That is what confirms sepsis. Um, Karen presented on all those occasions that Kitty describes 
with absolute shouting out warning signs that this was sepsis. Um, if you look then at 2016, the HSE chart on sepsis in maternal cases, it is talking about flu-like symptoms. It is talking about distension. It is talking about severe pelvic pain. Uh, it is talking about all the symptoms with which Karen presented, at which point you shout for help because this absolutely has to be checked for sepsis through and through. Why did this not happen at that point? How are our services so broken that we have sent another woman to her grave and three children left without their mother? We need independent investigation. We need somebody like Professor Errol Kumran back in again. We need an assessment of all our maternity units. We need to know why um, with one, two, three, four, five reports for HSE, one HICWA on sepsis, mentioning sepsis, emphasizing the importance of clinical, basic clinical care skills for sepsis, why this has not happened, why we have another woman in her grave. When are we going to get answers to this? When are we going to see that coroner's recommendations are actually taken up and enforced in hospitals? Because we have yet to see that too. Those are some of the issues that I see coming out of this. But it doesn't help that... That young woman should be with her baby, not no. in her grave. Joe, going back to the to the to the, to the occurrence of the sepsis or the or the or the, the the original um, genesis of it. I mean, I think what I found surprising as a lay person was that the symptoms didn't appear for a couple of days. Is that correct? It, no more than if you get a sniffle or a cold, and it takes a day or two for flu to emerge. It's the same sort of thing. An infection takes a while to manifest itself. That is why we need good community care. That is why we need good community midwifery care. If Karen had been part of a domino scheme, for example, she would have had a midwife calling to her house. And that midwife, within a couple of days of her being discharged, she would have had a midwife calling. The midwife, she would have been under midwife's care, having been discharged from the Coombe Hospital. She would have had a midwife calling to her house just to check and to make sure and to do these basic checks on temperature, on pulse. And if anything, we're beginning to suggest itself and if those other symptoms, flu-like symptoms, etc., those would have been absolute shout-out warning signs. We don't even have proper postnatal community midwifery, let alone do we have continuity of midwifery care, let, let alone do we have any of the things that actually support a woman through childbirth. Joe, thank you so much for giving us the benefit of your expertise this morning. Um, as I say, there are so many elements in this story that I'm no doubt at all will be talking to you very soon again. Thanks so much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Thank you and thank Kitty so much for doing this. Kitty, where next? What happens now? I mean, Dr Murphy Lawless there is obviously talking about independent inquiries. I know yeah. Karen's partner is also talking about an independent inquiry. You know the 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 the, um, the timeline on this. What are the chances of an independent inquiry? Well, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of pressure the HSE and the Coombe come under. Really, um, I mean, I I would expect soon now Simon Harris to have to comment on this case. I mean, he has a constituency office in Blessington, indeed. So um, they, they lived within his constituency. Um, in the Savita Halapanovar case, of course, there was the whole abortion dimension, which blew it up into a huge international story. Um, but seminal to that was sepsis. Um, so, but what really put the pressure on, I suppose, was the um, the level of coverage and the international coverage. But also her her husband, her widower Praveen, um, who 
would not let this go and would not accept the HSE inquiry that was being put in place. He wanted an independent inquiry. He did not trust the HSE or the Galway um, hospital where she died to investigate itself. And I would I would expect that um, Karen McAvoy's family and and Barry, her partner, will be start to put that pressure on. We don't even have the terms of reference yet for the kind of inquiry they're proposing, which would be one carried out by the Coombe itself. But I would think HICWA is going to be getting involved in this. Absolutely, definitely is going to be getting involved in this. There's going to be a coroner's investigation. And I think pressure will now grow, particularly now that we have the cause of death, which is sepsis. We didn't have that when we broke the story on Tuesday. Um, so the pressure will grow. But I mean, these things do take time. Um, and again, it comes down to the level of pressure that the HSE is under because they are not going to volunteer an independent inquiry. Last question, Kitty, around the reporting of maternal deaths. Mm. Would, I presume that would this have become public without your reporting and without without Karen's partner being prepared to speak about it? Um, there would have been an inquest, but these things can slip under the radar. Um, there might have been an inquest with no journalists there. Um, it would have been reported as um, a maternal death. I know Claire Daly, the Independent for Change TD, has put down some PQs on this, parliamentary questions about the circumstances, the level of staff coverage that we're on in the Coombe um, over Christmas um, and the, the background into what happened here. So it, I think it would have trickled out. But, you know, I have to um, commend Barry Kelly, her partner, who in an extremely difficult for him um, conversation with me, with his solicitor present, he was in tears. I was in tears um, when, when he was describing her last hours um, and the aftermath for him and his children. It's absolutely devastating. So he, I, he came forward, and as he said, he had to, he had to start putting the pressure on the HSE to start getting some answers. Grieving part. Can I say one thing? Yes, I wonder if she had been a private patient. Would this have happened? This was a very young woman. Very. Petite, by all accounts, um, working class woman in a public clinic two days before Christmas. And I do wonder if she had been a private patient with a consultant, would this have happened? And I very much doubt it. We leave it there, Kitty. Um, we commend you for your reporting and I commend Kitty's pieces to our listeners because they are indeed quite distressing and they do give you a sense of Barry and what he is left with now. Kitty Holland, thanks so much for coming in this morning. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Kitty Holland and Dr Joe Murphy-Lawless for speaking to the Women's Podcast. Remember you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan. With JJ Vernon on sound, I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.